0: Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast, a five-star rating, an Apple podcast or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much. And let's get into the episode. Today, we have an awesome guest. His name is David Moser, and he is the VP of growth at I am aware. In this episode, we talk about at-home lab testing and why more people are shifting to them, the growth and popularity of hospital at home, how to build a brand online and gain trust and where he sees healthcare going in the future. This is a great episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, David, how are you doing?
1: Doing well. Thanks for having me, Rosie.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for being on. I really appreciate your time. Uh, for those who don't know who you are, would you mind giving us a little background and introduction?
1: Sure. So, my, my name is David Moser. I live here in New York. And for the past about 15 years or so, I've been working in the healthcare sector as a whole, primarily in the diagnostic space. And the last couple of years I've really been focused more on the digital health side, kind of bridge the gap between diagnostics but bring it to the digital age, where as before everybody would, you know, go out and get a diagnostic test that was usually sold by a rep at one of the big diagnostic companies and then that would go from a test requisition and it would send out to a lab and then come back and have to go get the blood drawn. Lately I've been trying to bridge the gap and bring this diagnostics industry into the digital age where somebody could sit in the comfort of their own home and order a diagnostic test that could be integrated within their hospital frame, within that hospital network through their EMR, or even give the ability for a hospital to just send out these tests to focus on monthly, quarterly, annual testing so everybody can get the test in the comfort of their own home and just make this a simpler, better user experience and easier process. So that's what I've been focusing on. That's what I've been working on for the last number of years. Yeah, excited to be here and talk about this a little bit more.
0: Yeah, no, um, when we talked prior to this, I mean, you have a very extensive background um, in, in the diagnostic field, diagnostic world, and in sales as well. Um, I mean, um, you know, and your current company, you're, you're I don't know if you mentioned them. I'm Aware. Could you go into a little background of what they're doing right now?
1: Sure. So I'm Aware is a digital health platform that offers advanced at home based tests that screen and monitor for people's health. Essentially, we are empowering patients, providers, employers, brands through our affordable solutions and just general pr- promoting general wellness and preventative care. So essentially, at home testing is what we do at I'm aware and we can integrate with into a hospital or health systems, um, EMR into other digital platforms to essentially give access to diagnostic testing to everyone from the comfort of their own home.
0: Yeah, and the thing that was interesting about what you guys are doing is you guys are creating a platform, right, that people can go into. Would you mind kind of going into the platform itself?
1: Yeah, so the the platform itself is, you know, I'm aware started as a direct-to-consumer company, so you can go online, order a diagnostic test. But what we've shifted to today is essentially a plug and play platform for at-home testing. So as I mentioned before, if you're a hospital, your health system, if you're a clinical trial, you know, a farmer company, you know, doing a clinical trial, if you're a direct primary care company, anyone essentially who can benefit from at-home testing, we have built out all the APIs, we've built up all the custom framework, the platform as Zane mentioned, where you could come to us, we can, you know, put together the specific assay, the specific test that you're looking for. We can plug that into your current framework and then we could just have tests mailed out to patients home patients take the test and the results flow back and seamlessly so we built all of that platform out so anyone can just take advantage of what we do without having the expertise in building kits in laboratory and diagnostics fulfillment kidding, shipping we do that all as an end-to-end solution
0: that's amazing so so you so you guys would take care of everything right from what i'm understanding you take care of the the lab the test you know getting the lab work done and then also reporting the lab I mean through obviously through APIs Correct. and such to wherever sure. they need to be done
1: yeah so we like to think of it as like a one stop shop so if somebody is thinking about at home testing there's other companies that they can go to and just find that at home test and there may be other companies that are out there that can do the integration we like to think of ourselves and our solution is really that end to end where somebody can reach out to I'm aware and say hey. We want, to get, we want to start offering at-home tests. Can you help us with X, Y, and Z? We can build and develop a custom test, and then we can do the entire integration process, indicating and fulfillment, everything as an end-to-end solution. So someone says, hey, David, we want at-home testing, and we build out the whole thing for them.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, uh, coming just from, I mean just in general, getting, getting lab work done, it can be really expensive, right? Especially if you're a smaller clinic or um, hospital system. And then if you don't have that work, you have to send it, send your patients out to like bigger hospital systems and such. And it can be kind of a pain in, in the rear end, right? Um, What, what are your main customers? Are you seeing that it's kind of like the smaller clinics and, or is it also like the big hospital systems as well? So we're we're seeing
1: interest from all sides, which I think is interesting. We're seeing a lot of you know, big hospital and health systems when it comes to value-based care or the HEDIS measures that are looking at, you know, patient engagement, patient outreach, making sure they're hitting all of those metrics that are looking to do a hospital home to get some of those remote, hard-to-reach patients to actually make sure that they're checking those boxes and getting those tests done. So we're definitely seeing that. We're also seeing a lot of, you know, digital health, digital primary care companies reaching out as well, kind of building out their own lab capabilities. But we're also seeing those mom-and-pop pharmacies. We're also seeing a lot of the standalone practitioners, nurses, PAs, people running their own kind of wellness business who are looking to build out their brand and promote diagnostic testing. So we're seeing this all across the spectrum. And I think the the cool part or the underlying theme of all of it is that everybody wants to have a better user experience. People don't want to take hours out of their day going to a lab and getting their labs done. So everybody's trying to take advantage of this, like, digital age and putting diagnostics into that digital age of being able to mail tests at home and check the boxes and make sure that people are getting those diagnostics tests that they need, you know, at a timely manner and when it's convenient for them.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, no. And you mentioned the word branding and the brand themselves. So do you guys also white label products as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are I'm aware is the name of our company, but we're, we're not really looking to build our brand as the i'm aware brand we're trying to empower our other businesses we call our solutions powered by solutions so you know if this is you know zane as a pharmacist trying to build out his brand this would be zane powered by i'm aware so you know we really aren't about building our brand we can white label that whole solution for a hospital health system or for any specific brand that's out there
0: yeah i mean that's amazing because then you know it kind of brings validity uh, to you right especially if you're a smaller clinic or you know a a standalone clinic, and standalone practice, standalone pharmacy, you know, it kind of brings, I mean, the brand, I mean, as much as people don't want to, want to say it, the brand actually matters a lot. So it's actually pretty awesome that you guys are able to white label products, but, and then still on top of that, take care of the whole um, supply chain.
1: Yeah. We think branding is, is really a, a, an important factor in all of this because if you are, you know, I don't know, the name of your specific practice, your patients know you, and things get lost in translation when you mail <laughs> home an at-home test. We say, hey, you know, David, you're going to get a diagnostic test because we need to measure your HbA1c or your thyroid, and then you mail them an i test, and the patients are like, I saw a doctor so-and-so, and I'm getting an i test. I don't know what's going on. But if that doctor can then send home, you know, his name was Dr. Schwartz, and you can send home a Dr. Schwartz HbA1c test, it's on point it's on brand patients aren't confused there's that seamless transition from in the practice to at-home care and then we find that's really you know an important factor in making sure that people get those tests and know who they are who they're coming from and what to do with it
0: yeah no and um that's something that i don't think that'll we on the you know on, on the customer end think about you know hey Kay. Hey, um i mean i've talked to patients where they get like a letter it's unmarked or whatever. Or how many times have you gotten like an unmarked letter with your check card, I mean, debit card or credit card in, and you just end up tossing it? Because I mean, in that case, sure. they're doing that for security reasons. But I mean, I have talked yeah, to patients no. where they get something and you're like, Oh, didn't you get that in the mail? Uh, I don't know. And then you're like resending them over and over. I, I've done that a couple of times actually.
1: Absolutely. No, we think that's a, a really crucial part. So if you're, you know, at NYU, for example, I'm in New York. So I'm just thinking of like hospital systems that are in Amory. But if you're at NYU and you get it tested at home. People are used to, you know, getting that requisition and going to Quest and LabCorp. But like, as we mentioned, that's kind of an older model or people are trying to do something that's a little better of a patient experience, user experience. And if you're mailing an at-home test kit and it comes from a different brand, people don't, like you said, they see that and be like, I'm not really sure what this is and toss it or leave it on the kitchen table. Whereas, you know, if you're seeing a doctor in NYU and you get an NYU test at home, it's kind of that comfort of, hey, yeah, this is exactly what I talked about with Dr. So and so when I was in the office and here it is on my table. You take the test and you send it back. So we find that's a a really important um you know part of the process.
0: Yeah, and then also um I mean as somebody who's had to go to like these standalone labs, it's always it's not not, I shouldn't say always it's not always the best experience, depending on which location you go to. And then also another thing is um a lot of times when people need labs, they're usually older and they might not have rides or whatever you know anything right like they're frail they might be you know they might be sick they might miss labs i mean that happens all the time and uh, you know that's where something like what you guys are doing is really awesome and then and the fact that you guys and did you mention that you guys also um develop the labs as, as well is that something else you guys do
1: we can i mean we have you know a menu of 200 plus biomarkers available um but we can build and develop custom assays as well so if somebody comes to us for a specific test or a bar marker that we don't currently have. I mean, as long as our lab is capable of doing that, which we most likely are, we have the ability to build that out as well.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And then, um, uh, what was I going to say? I completely forgot. I had a question. But anyways, uh, I think that's, I mean, I think the hospital at home, like the lab at home is really something, because as a phys- as a as like a clinician, we need to go off of data and the, primarily the data is usually lab lab data. Right. And if we don't have that lab data, we're kind of shooting in the dark. So that's why I think labs are so important and like, and then like what you guys are doing. Oh, that now, I remember what I wanted to ask you. So uh, shelf life of your lab test. So like, let's say I'm a, like, you know, can, can like, if I'm a physician or a pharmacy or whatever, can I also just have the labs and just hand them out to our patients or does it always have to be mailed out?
1: You know, it doesn't have to be mailed out. The shelf life of our kids are typically about almost two years, I believe. I think somewhere in their own 18 to 24 months. Oh, wow. So these kids can certainly be sitting on the shelf. And we talked about this last time. And, you know, obviously you were a pharmacist by training. That's your background. We are seeing a growing, you know, demand for these as part of the pharmacy as well. And I think it's not just the comfort of people doing this at home. You know, I think the number is, and don't quote me on it, but I think there's somewhere that I saw. I think 25% of Americans don't have a primary care provider. So they don't have their PCP that they go to on a regular basis. And then what we're seeing over the last, you know, probably 12 months, but more so even recently, is kind of a race for pharmacy chains essentially to become the primary care providers. Um, you know, Walgreens bought a big, you know, um, who was that? Um, Walgreens bought that uh, big urgent care company to essentially become for yeah. city MD, Yes. for $9 billion to essentially become the primary care, to turn Walgreens into primary care clinics wherever they have those locations. And um, we've seen other big pharmacy chains do something similar CVS has a minute clinic. Essentially, they're all trying to grab a piece of that 25% of the American you know, public that doesn't have a primary care provider. So we're seeing a growing demand for the big chains. We're also seeing interest from the small mom-and-pop pharmacies that are looking to grow and extend their business and extend their reach by, again, offering... To become sort of that primary care provider, we have some of them that we fully integrate in in the, in the ways that we discuss through API, and we have others that are just stocking these kits on their shelves, so that patients could come into the store, you know, and the you know, they're speaking to the pharmacist, you know, they have diabetes, and the pharmacist, says, hey, you know, when was the last time you had your HbA1c checked? And they say, I'm not really sure I've done that in a while. The pharmacist can walk around the counter, pull out a test, be like, hey, take this, you know, go home, take this test, and then. When they come back with their results, we could essentially, the pharmacist could essentially provide some follow on care and act as that primary care provider. And I think that's a really big growing market outside of or in conjunction with like people just wanting to be doing things in the comfort of their own home.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, I'm very biased, obviously, because I'm a pharmacist. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that, um, I mean, it's good to hear you say that because I've always been pushing for. Pharmacists to do more because we, I mean, quote unquote, I mean, there's a there's a big thing in healthcare like practicing at the top of your license, and I don't think you know we people a lot of people don't realize that. Um, actually, at this point, most of us now are have a doctorate degree. Like we can, like a lot of times they don't realize that, and we can do a lot of things. Like in school, we're taught to uh, manage disease states. Like pretty much more than half of our training is managing disease states, uh, managing medications, all that stuff. But a lot of times that's not done. Um, for various reasons right i mean a lot actually majority of it is because we don't get reimbursed for insurance but i mean this is a good step right like you mentioned perfect example right you have a diabetic patient that is complaining to the pharmacist because a lot of times people come to the pharmacist and we're really we can't go anywhere obviously because we're like right right in front of them and, and we have a lot more time uh, most sometimes uh than the doctor so they'll talk to us and then yeah like what you said is perfect right hey when was the last time you had your a1c check here grab a grab a test check it and then we can talk about it later and then you know maybe we can't adjust your medication but we can definitely call your doctor and be like hey you know John's a1c is like 11 12 like either you have to see him or we need to work on some sort of medication adjustment so i mean i'm 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 so happy to hear you say that that it that pharmacy is a growing market for for your company
1: yeah i mean it's it's really all over the place it that has this you know it's not just pharmacies, it's not just hospital systems. And it's another growing segment, you know, we're talking about like an older population, maybe you mentioned chronic conditions that people need to have these diagnostic tests often enough to see what's going on. Again, as you mentioned at the beginning, without those data, you know, the whole virtual care market is kind of not much more than a conversation without those hard facts. So as all these virtual telemedicine platforms, businesses, practices are growing without a way to offer some sort of hard fact, some hard data, which in the, this case would be those diagnostic tests, it's really the only way to m- move that virtual telemedicine practice into the future and incorporate this at-home testing into that mix. And then without focusing on this a little bit too much, another growing part of the business as well is looking at things a little bit more preventative. So moving away from the older or the chronic thinking about businesses as, you know, wellness, longevity, as people are looking to live longer and healthier and better, more fulfilled lives, when it comes to vitamins, nutrients, supplements, people would just go to the store and buy what they think is hot at the moment. Another way to kind of perfect that would be to have diagnostics mixed in. Mixed in. There's a lot of companies out there that are offering these vitamin supplements, and incorporate diagnostic testing to see what they're deficient in. And then the, the supplements that they're prescribing on a monthly basis are not specific to that patient. They're deficient in zinc and vitamin D and X, Y, and Z. And that's what they're getting every single month to make sure that, that it's, you know, on point. There's another growing market there as well.
0: Yeah. And then, um, I mean, I don't, I don't have to go dive into all the markets. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, I'm, I'm the one asking the questions, but DTC yeah. is another one, right? Like where you have yeah, physicians kind of going over and then, you know, kind of, but uh, you mentioned APIs quite a bit. Uh, when you were just discuss- like, so what kind of, um, what are you guys connecting with? So there's
1: a, there's a couple of things that we're connecting with. Number one would be EMRs. So if we're working with a medical group, a medical practice, the hospital, the health system, typically the way that doctors <laughs> are ordering tests at the moment is the, their, everything lives with inside their EMR. Um, Inside that EMR is where they would go out and press a couple of buttons to have prescriptions written for lab tests, which the patients would typically then go and take that prescription to request a lab for or to the hospital lab and get that lab drawn. So in those scenarios, when we're working with medical groups, hospitals, health systems, we're integrating into their EMRs to give their providers the capability to order testing in the same fashion that they always have been. So they can go into their EMR and order a test and have the patient go to Quest, or they can go into the EMR, hit a button, and now, which would trigger us via API to mail a kit to that patient. So in the provider or the doctor frame, network, you know, we're, we're integrating into those EMRs. Um, when it comes to some of those digital primary care companies or some of those other digital first sort of care, we may be integrating into a portal, we may be integrating into a website, we may be integrating into an app, But essentially, the integrations are taking place so that when, you know, a website, an app, an EMR, a platform, or whatever that may be where those patients are being seen, we can seamlessly integrate into those platforms to give those providers the capability to order testing directly from whatever program that they're in. And then for people who don't necessarily have the complex integrations, we have our own EMR, our own provider portal, which we can then use as a one-stop shop as well.
0: Yeah, no, I mean that's I mean that I mean I mean that's amazing. So no, I mean I mean I think what you guys are building with I am aware is pretty pretty awesome, and I think I can definitely see why so many people are coming after you because honestly, like you know, they don't really have to do anything when it comes to lab work. They just say, hey, pick up the phone, call you guys. I'll obviously, work out the contracts and such. Uh, but then after that, it's you know it's a it's done, right? It's just literally one click and you're gone. So that that is. That is truly amazing, but um, you have quite a long um history in this space. Um, I would love to talk to you about, you know, what you've seen throughout your time, like different advances. Um, also what you've learned uh, during this time.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I, I mean, we talked about this previously. You know, I kind of started my career in diagnostics. I was working for an anatomic pathology lab in Brooklyn, New York, and I started out selling. Kind of two services, which was really my first time getting in front. Yeah, well, number one, working in the healthcare space, but number two, starting all the way at the bottom, selling into the doctor's office So going into the doctor's office, understanding you know the way medicine is practiced in the United States, understanding the way a doctor's office works, understanding the way an EMR is crucial to the backbone of a practice. Um, so I was selling two things essentially. One was a fine needle aspiration, which. You know, 15 years ago, it was like some cutting-edge technology where instead of cutting off, like, a, a tumor, seeing what it, what it is as a surgical procedure just to see if it's cancer or not cancer, this was like a little needle that you could stick inside a growth, pull out some tissue on the spot, and essentially tell the patient right then and there, like, hey, this is cancer or this is not cancer, and this is something we can monitor. So it was really cool cutting-edge technology at the time. Um, I was telling that, and then on the back end, it was, like, just standard lab work, and, used one to get the other. So once we had doctors on board for our fine aspirations, we would pull the switch to be like, hey, we also have a regular lab. And that's how we would kind of gain some market share, class, lab core, Boswick at the time. So that's kind of where I started. So I started there. That was my first foray into healthcare, understanding the healthcare market. Um, I don't know how, how deep you want me to go, but real quick, you know, I went from there thinking that I want to work for some like massive multinational, large organization, and really gained from that experience, which led me into medical devices. I worked for Essilor, um, which was really eye-opening to me, understanding how these big, massive, you know, American corporations, how they work. Well, this wasn't American, this was actually French, but, you know, understanding how (laughs) how these companies work, the more intricate parts of the healthcare space. Um, Ultimately, you know, I wanted to get back into diagnostics. I really really enjoyed my time. It was about 2015 or so when I got back into diagnostics, but more specifically genetics. It was also my foray into the startup world because genetics was really really early on at the time in 2015. It was really expensive. It was 20 plus thousand dollars. It didn't have any insurance coverage. This was primarily sold as like a research tool into hospital systems or into those hospitals that are in kind of those wealthier, more affluent markets where patients, ha- where people had the funds to cover the cost of these testing. Um, so with there, I started, it was my experience, started number one in the startup space, but number two, really getting more intricate, more deeply involved in the healthcare system as a whole and population health and really understanding the ins and outs, the complexities of the large healthcare system. Um, worked for a couple of different startup companies in the genomic space, transition to kind of leading you know all u.s business development efforts for a cro So entering the clinical trial market so i spent at this point i don't know 10 12 years working you know as you know within the doctors groups for diagnostics medical device um genetics then kind of flipped this switch and was working for a clinical trial company selling full clinical trial services So working then with those same companies I was working with before, helping them work through their clinical trials, getting FDA approval, working through your marketing, logistics, a number of different things that these companies, these startup companies are thinking about as they build and grow, Um, which ultimately, again, led back into diagnostics, because I really think that's where, you know, I'm supposed to be. I just really enjoyed, enjoy the space, love my time there. But, you know, as I mentioned early on, you know, all of that experience that I had in diagnostics in healthcare as a whole really pushed me towards the digital health side of things. How can we take diagnostics, all the experience that I've had previously, move that into the 21st century and really create this digital platform, um, you know, where we can offer the same diagnostic testing, but with a 21st century spin on that, which led me to I'm aware of where I am now. That's so it's kind of like my long journey, but kind of shortened a little bit, but I'm happy to dive into any specific, you know, part of that journey.
0: Oh yeah. No, I mean that, I mean, I can see why you, I'm aware hired you because I mean, just the, just the experience that you have, I mean, you've seen so much, but yeah, I definitely have some questions. So you mentioned your, did you have a sales job prior to the one before the fine needle aspiration job?
1: i uh, not really. I, I worked a little bit in like, some catering sales, but
0: yeah.
1: I didn't have any formal sales job or any formal training. Um, that that find your aspirations, you know, anatomic pathology lab was really my first jump into the sales world as like a professional.
0: So it was your first sales job and your first healthcare job, huh?
1: Correct. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, really, you really got thrown into the fire, huh? <laughs>
1: yeah, but it was fun. I mean, I, I learned a lot, you know, and it was it was a, a learning experience both in sales. And, um, you know, in the healthcare market too.
0: Yeah, no, uh, I think one thing that a lot, of, a lot of startups struggle with is how to get through the door. Um, do you have any advice for uh, new startups that are coming out or anyone with a new product? And like, how do, you, how do you get through the door of like a health system or a clinic or something?
1: Yeah, this, you know, it, it, times are changing. So going back to when I started, um, there really wasn't much of a market, a digital marketplace, so there was no LinkedIn Facebook, Twitter, all these other channels, podcasts, none of this stuff really existed at the time. Everything was door to door. So at the time I think it was really important to, and I think it's still important today, to really understand how the doctor's office, how the hospital works. At the time access was a little bit easier. So it was important to perfect, I guess, that like walking into an office or a hospital cold call. I think that was really important. I think today it's probably less important. It's always an important skill to have, but I wouldn't necessarily train a sales force on that because access is still limited. It's a much more expensive route to go. I think, honestly, digital is, is the way to go, and I think COVID sped this up tremendously. Um, one of the companies I was working at, we launched, We, we were, I, was, I was working at Natera, and we were launching a brand-new organ health division, so we were launching a a test, a blood test, to help detect organ rejection. We started this division right before COVID, but we launched it during COVID. And while a number of reps all across the country were struggling with access because COVID hit, offices were closed, hospitals were closed, you couldn't get in and out. And they were struggling with, hey, this is what I did for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I no longer have access to these physicians. I no longer have access to these hospitals or medical groups. Like, how am I supposed to sell this product I was really quick to pivot to selling via LinkedIn and selling via Twitter, and, and just really creating a digital, you know, a digital version of yourself where you can go out, talk, and educate people in a public forum. And I think today, to answer your question, if I were to help, you know, individual salespeople or individual startup companies as they're looking to the launch a product and build a sales team and build all that, I think being where all the attention is today, all of that is digital, you know. Understanding that really well, understanding how to use LinkedIn and Twitter, there's a shocking amount of healthcare professionals from doctors, physicians, you know, healthcare leaders, hospital CEOs who spend a lot of time on these digital platforms and understanding how these work is where I would put all my efforts towards an individual salesperson or a company to try to perfect that channel um, as a way to sell and promote and build their brand.
0: That's, um, that's actually really fascinating. So. I mean, this might be more of a selfish question for me, Sure. sure. but, uh, so like, what would you, what, what what are you recommending if somebody goes on LinkedIn or Twitter? Are they, are you, I mean, you mentioned education, are you just posting educational content and, and, you know, drawing attention that way to you? And they're like, Oh, Hey, I see, uh, David works at this company. Oh, let me, let me hit him up. Or are you physically talking about the product? I think it's
1: a combination of both. You know, when somebody just you know, goes on LinkedIn or Twitter or social media in general and is constantly promoting their company, their brand, their product, I don't think that comes off necessarily well. You seem like an ad or a billboard and probably won't get a lot of attention. But if you can build, you know, a name for yourself, like, hey, I work in digital health or I work in diagnostics, and you just start posting about the space, every once in a while, you can do a selfish plug about your company, your brand, your product just build a space to talk about the industry as a whole, become a sounding board. And then after a certain point, you can build an audience and people start engaging with you. And soon you seem to be like someone who is a subject matter expert in your specific field. And people start flocking towards you for advice or to see what you're talking about or what products you're promoting. That's ultimately the way to build, you know, your name and your brand online, which will ultimately help to sell and build your company's brand. And then I think, Number two is, build. look for your specific target market. So if you're looking to sell, you know, let's just pick something random, spine. If you're looking to sell a spine product to spine surgeons. Or if you're looking to sell diagnostics to geneticists, go look at your key, you know, people that you want to sell to. Check them out on LinkedIn and Twitter. See who is going to be, you know, posting these on a posting general on a daily basis, weekly basis. Look at what they're posting. Look at what they're talking about engage with them on their comments, on their posts, reshare something that they wrote. If you see a medical journal or you see an article or a link or a post that they shared, don't just write, that was great doc, but like read it, take some time, write a thoughtful comment, reshare it. Everybody wants to get attention online. You know, if they're posting something online, they want somebody to read it. And I've had a lot of success and I know a lot of people who've had success by actually taking the time to read something thoughtfully you know, comment or engage in a comment or be share something to get that conversation going. Now, all of a sudden you're somebody that they know. So if they're bumping into you at a conference or they get an email, they're like, wait a second, Dave and Moser, I know that guy. And they respond. It's a way to kind of, you know, make that connection with someone without actually getting to know them. Um, I, I think that's a really, really important way. And I would, wouldn't call it a hard sell. It's more of that soft sell. You're not really selling you're, you're Engaging in conversations which familiarize yourself with somebody else, which ultimately makes it an easier conversation when you do get in front of them.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's what you mentioned is powerful because you're building trust, you know, and then trust is the hardest thing, especially, I mean, trust is one of the biggest things in healthcare in general, right? Whether you're the doctor, the patient, salesperson, whatever you are, like you have to develop that trust. And like if you're doing what you say, you know, like you mentioned, like all the steps that you're doing, you're building that trust with your audience. With, and hopefully it's that specific audience that you're trying to reach, and it's not, and it's not like it's not like you're lying to them or anything like that. You're providing them with value. If you're providing them with value, then you'll get value back, right?
1: Yeah, and it, and it's it's a really a two way street. Like if you're, you know, I mentioned it briefly before, but if your target market, your target audience is out there using social platforms, and you engage with that, number one, like you said, you're familiarizing yourself, you're building that trust. But they also want their, you know, their work to be seen. And if you engage and comment or reshare some of their work, automatically, obviously not if there's someone who has millions of followers, you know, they may not notice it. But if they have a small, mid-sized audience, you know, they'll notice the likes and the comments and the reshares, and it automatically, you'll see, hey, look, they just checked at your profile. And then, you know, you can build, authentically build that trust and build that dialogue between you and your target market that when you do get on the phone and you do get on an email, it's not a cold call anymore. It's like, Hey, this is someone I really know, even though you've never
0: met. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. Um, so I, I also want to go into something. So if you're like an, uh, and this is like a debate that I've heard, um, going versus like starting with a big company versus a startup. Like if you're brand new into sales strategy, growth, whatever, um, would you recommend, Somebody kind of cut, and cutting their t- teeth in like a bigger organization, or going straight into the startup world. Because you've seen yeah, it's both it. of them.
1: <laughs> it's a good question, and I really think it, The answer is it depends, which is like not much of an answer. <laughs> but um, you know, I personally today would lean more towards. You know, for me, I think a startup environment is much better for me. It is more entrepreneurial. You get to work on multiple things at the same time. There's also tons of pressure, so it's not all. You know, <laughs> so it's, it's not all it's, everyone thinks it's going to be. There's tons of pressure. There's less people. There's less places to hide. But I think to answer your question, for somebody getting a start, you know, there's definitely a perk or a plus of joining a large organization. When I work for SLAWR and Allergan, you now they have a really structured formal sales process, which was certainly helpful for me. I was six years into it by the time I had that. But again, it's a good formal sales training. And if somebody's getting into the space, and starts out at a really large organization, I think they'll benefit from the structured, you know, sales training, the structured product training, the structured training that they get in their specific space on their specific product and sales as a whole. Um, for me, in particular, I think you know the startup market for me, you know, it is just where it's at. You have more, you know, you wear multiple hats, you get more experience, um, You get to work on so many different aspects at the same time, whereas in a large organization, everybody's kind of staying in their lane. So I think, you know, later on in your career, everybody will figure out where they work best. But certainly getting a start, if somebody can get that training um, in a big company, I think that's very valuable. And, you know, again, because I said it depends, I think some people learn really well on their own where they join a startup and they really don't get a training. They get somebody telling them, Welcome to the job, David. Now go do X, Y, and Z and figure it out. Some people will sit there and be like, hey, I don't know what to do. This job isn't for me. And some people will thrive in that environment where they're going out and building, creating on their own. Yeah. So no. I know that was an all over the place answer, but I really do think it depends on the specific person of what, what environment they work best in.
0: I mean, I think you answered the question. I think uh, the answer that you gave, I mean, I think it's, it makes sense because, you know, like, like you mentioned, the startup environment you need to be a self-starter, and you need to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, right? Like you need to be comfortable with not knowing what the hell is going on ninety percent of the times. Versus like in a bigger company, you have a little bit more structure, you have a little bit more direction. Let's just say that, right? Versus startups, generally the direction is we just want to we just want to go in the right direction, right? So I think I mean you answered the question for me, but um yeah. you know you are the VP of growth of I am aware. Uh, where do you see the market going in terms of, you know, hospital at home, like, you know, there's a lot of buzzwords being thrown around. Um, and like, what, what are your, like, you don't have to give away what I'm trying to do, but like, where are you seeing yeah. like this whole hospital at home revolution kind of playing out?
1: Yeah. I, I just think this is going to be a, a bigger and bigger, you know, market moving into the future, you know, with RPM remote patient monitoring with hospital at home, Um, There's so many growing segments of the healthcare market which have to do with, you know, taking care of patients at home. You know, it helps free up space in the hospital for more sick patients, for more, again, for more revenue positive, uh, you know, patients as well in the hospital system so they can make more money and a better patient experience for patients where they can stay home if they don't need to be in a hospital. And I think that's a growing segment that's going to continue to grow outside of remote patient monitoring, outside of hospital or home, I think people just wanting to take control of their own healthcare, people wanting to take control of, you know, everything that's going on and not solely rely on the one, two, or three times a year that they're at a doctor's office um, to have that, you know, interaction or have them point them in the direction of what they need to do with for healthcare. So I think this is continuing to grow, like we mentioned in the beginning of this, there's hospitals, health systems, clinical trials. There's, I mean, digital primary care, virtual primary care, telemedicine, personalized medicine, nutrition. There's so many avenues that this is a, a growing. I think, you know, ultimately in a couple of years, this is, you know, I don't want to say it's going to replace labs because I don't think it ever can. At home testing at the moment is limited to what we can do on dry blood spot testing and that technology will continue to grow. But I think ultimately there's always going to be a place for the labs, you know, the traditional labs. But as the at-home segment market continues to grow, I you know, I just see the next couple of years being a really, really solid, fun, challenging experience for all of us in this space, you know, to, to kind of ride that wave over the next couple of years.
0: Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I think that hospital at home, it almost has to work because of just the nature of what's happening in like, you know, and my hospitals, like a lot of hospitals are, you know, filled to the brim, you know, because other hospitals are closing down. So you're running out of bed. So I think it's going to, A, it makes sense, right? You know, there's a lot of studies that show that people get better at home because they're in the comfort of their own home. They're eating food that they actually like. They're not getting woken up like four, 14 times a day at 2 a.m., <laughs> you know, but uh no, I agree with you. But what do you, what do you see as the biggest uh, barriers? For something like that, like hospital at home remote patient monitoring, like what? Since you're kind of in this space, like what do you see as like the biggest yeah. barriers to for that taking hold?
1: I think there's a couple of things that need to happen before this kind of really becomes more mainstream. Number one, there's there's no CPT code right now for the at home component of um, at home testing. So while we are a CLIA CAP certified lab, no different than Quest or LabCorp or any other you know big national lab out there the at home component, which is for us, you know, let's take the make up a price of a test for a hundred dollars. There's probably 20 bucks of that, which is around the actual lab. And then there's other components of that, which are the biggest one being shipping, the second and the third probably being the cost of the kit, the, the cost of the goods inside the kit and then the, the kit, the box themselves. And there's no CPT code for the at home component, which makes it hard for all hospitals or hospitals that are cost conscious to adopt this because it's not something that they can get reimbursed on at the moment. Um, I think once that CPT code is there, which there are a number of bills in Congress that are working on this, I think once there's a CPT code that can be reimbursed, so just like they can get reimbursed for their traditional labs, they can use hospital, you know, a, a at home lab test and get reimbursed for that as well. I think that's the trajectory that we're all waiting for to see this really become mainstream. And then I think outside of that, just more comfortability with, you know, doing these at-home tests. It's only the last couple of years that it's really been popular. It's still kind of new and nuanced. A lot of the people that you speak with are not necessarily so comfortable with it. They don't really know enough about it. And I think it's just like anything. There's that, like, the fast adopters that adopted this a couple of years ago or that are adopting it now, People are sitting by and watching. And then in five years from now, there's going to be those people like, man, I can't believe it took me this long to adopt this. So I think number one, there's the CPT code, which we really need to get to progress the industry to where it needs to go. And then as well, just in general, like anything, there's early adopters and then there's kind of everyone else. And we're kind of in the in-between phase right now.
0: Yeah, no. Um, do you see that there's a little bit more... What's the word I'm looking for? So you mentioned, you know, when you talk to people, people are a little comfortable with it right now, right? Do you feel like patients are more comfortable or providers are more comfortable? I don't know if that question makes sense. Like, do you, do you get some pushback from providers? Like, oh, how accurate is this? Or do you get more pushback yeah, from patients or is it kind of equal between both of them?
1: They're, they're, I would say this, it's hard to, to say. We get a lot of questions from providers who are not necessarily familiar with dry blood spot testing and want to kind of know the difference between dried blood spot testing and the standard, you know, phlebotomy that they do on a, on a daily basis. There's tons of studies out there that we can go through on the clinical validity of everything. But we get a lot of those questions from providers. We don't really get those kind of questions from patients. We do every once in a while. Um, but again, with the patients, it's, it's, you know, it's the patients that are either getting to us on their own, which means that they're kind of those early adopters, patients who are saying like, hey, I want to measure my thyroid. I'm going to go online and find an at-home test. Those are the patients that aren't thinking about that. It's some of those patients that are on the receiving end of at-home tests from their providers, the provider groups that are hospitals or health systems that they receive the kit. They're like, what is this? And they go online. We get questions from them, trying to understand the process, how this works. Um, But I think right now there's probably a little bit more hesitancy on the provider side than the patient side. Um, Some providers love this. You know, we're working with a number of health systems and, you know, big name health systems who love what we're doing and are, you know, quick to join. Um, And then there's others who are just a little bit more hesitant because it's not what they've done in the past.
0: Yeah, no, um, that's for sure. I think that that's the thing. I think I I was expecting that, too, like from providers, providers being a little hesitant, Uh, Because you guys are, could you could you kind of go into the difference between like a standard blood draw, like uh, that we all have done, and and what you guys are doing the dried spot dried blood spot test? Just
1: to clarify, like I'm aware, did it invent any specific technology when it comes to you know the at home blood test? If somebody goes online and looks up at home blood test and gets it from a number of companies, essentially the difference comes down to how much blood. So if somebody's doing a standard blood draw, they're getting you know a venipuncture, they're getting you know a phlebotomist. <clears throat> they're drawing a certain amount of blood, which is a larger quantity, so they can do more tests. Pretty much any test when you're doing a phlebotomy of blood draw. An at atom blood test. The limitation is the amount of blood that you can draw. At it with an atom blood test. We use uh, um, an ADX card, so we have like a little finger prick and a lancet. Somebody will use and prick their finger. Some blood will drip out, smaller quantities, and we'll put that onto an ADX card. Once that's dried, the stability of that is you know, typically about 21 days. We ship that back to the lab. So the, the, li- the limitations that we have essentially come down to the quantities of blood. So if we're looking to do some of these blood tests that require a lot of blood, that's the limitation of at-home blood tests. We won't be able to offer that. And it's not like you'll get a bad result. We just don't offer it because we can't do that with at-home blood testing today. Those patients will still have to go to a lab, which is like why I mentioned earlier, we're not replacing the standard lab, we're really working in conjunction with them for the tests that we can do via at-home blood tests. We're just making it simpler, easier process so people don't have to take hours out of their day. But to answer your question in short, again, the limitation or the main difference between a phlebotomy and at-home blood test via dried blood spot testing is the quantity of blood that we're drawing. So the limitation would be any blood test that needs a large quantity of blood. You're so going to have to do the standard venipuncture phlebotomy. And anything that is a lower quantity of blood required for that test, we can do an add-on blood test for.
0: Yeah, no, no, thank you for, because um, I'm sure people would have asked, like, oh, what's the difference? But, uh, no, um, so if somebody wants to get a hold of you uh, or, you know, or wanna or are really interested and I'm aware, like, what is the best way of uh, doing either, actually?
1: Yeah, so I mean, somebody can find me on, on LinkedIn or Twitter. My name is David Moser. It be easily found <coughs> on, on either one of those platforms. I think on LinkedIn it's LinkedIn.com forward slash Moser David. Um, on Twitter, I'm on there as well. I may not be as active as I am on LinkedIn or some of the other platforms, but I'm at David Moser One on Twitter. And then somebody could always, you know, shoot me an email as well. It's dmoser at i'maware dot Awesome,
0: awesome. And I'll have, uh oops, awesome. And I'll have um those linked in the show notes below. Um, So one last question I want to ask you. So again, you've been in the space for quite a while. Is there anything, any advice you would have given yourself when you started, knowing what you know now?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of advice that I would (laughs) give myself looking back, you know, 15, 16 years later. Um, I, I think number one, you know, being patient, you know, and understanding that sales in general is a long game. I think people are a little bit too quick, myself included, earlier on in my career where I would start talking to people and as soon as I hear that problem, I jump right into the solution and I close my ears and I stop listening to anything that person says because there's like blood in the water and I need to make that sale. And I think you know, while sometimes that may or may not work and you may get the sale that you're trying to get, but ultimately you're losing that customer long-term because it's unpleasant, not comfortable, and you're not really building that relationship. And I think for any sales to be successful, it's not about selling. It's about building that relationship and acting as a guide and taking this patient or this provider or this hospital or this client on a journey. And you're providing those help as an expert in that field and guiding them, you know, on where they need to go and how they can build and grow their business. And taking that more time to just sit back and and play the long game. Like you may not win this specific sale, and I've had this a number of times in my career. And looking back, I wish I would have done that earlier. Where I tell someone hey, I really can't help you. Our product, or offering is not good for you and guide them where they can go elsewhere. And then all of a sudden, two years later, they come back to you as someone that, hey, this is someone that I can trust. He's not sleazy. He's not slimy. He's someone that I can really trust and they come back to you later on. But I think the number one lesson I would give myself is take the time to listen, understand, empathize with the, the clients that you're selling to or the clients that you're dealing with um, and, and take that time to really understand their wants, understand their needs and how you're, product or your solution works for them versus, you know, trying to find somewhere that you could sell your product to. That would be the the big number one advice that I would give myself. And then number two would really be, you know, find find people along the way to help mentor you. So those can be people that you're selling to. Again, we're talking (laughs) about healthcare. So there's providers, groups, physicians, CEOs, chief medical officers, chief of specific departments that you're working with. Find some of those people and build that relationship and invest in that relationship and try to get some of those people to help mentor you and foster that relationship. I've been fortunate enough later on in my career to build some of that out, and I would highly recommend myself or anyone else earlier in their career to try to find and build some of those mentors earlier on that could just really help guide you. Number one, understanding, am I at the right company? Am I selling the right product? Am I in the right space? You know they really understand healthcare a lot better than me, and building those relationships and getting those mentorships, I think is something that's really important as well.
0: No, I mean I think that's amazing advice, and we'll end it there. But thank you, David, uh, for your time and gener- generosity. I mean you've you've been amazing. There's been uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, thank you, Zane. Really, really appreciate it. All right.